Welcome to Leading Thinkers, a podcast about leadership in the humanities, humanities and leadership, and how studying the humanities affects leadership practices. Our host is John Esposito, Classics PhD and co-founder of Calion, a nonprofit dedicated to elevating leadership through the humanities. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast episode. This is John Esposito, your host, and where I'm talking today with Dr. Christine Tully, who will introduce herself. I'm Christine Tully. I am a professor of English and director of the graduate program in rhetoric and writing at the University of Finley. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. We're going to be talking about leadership in the humanities broadly, um, with a little bit of extra focus today on some of Christine's own research, which is, turns out to be quite relevant, especially relevant in these COVID days. We'll talk broadly about leadership and time management, a little bit of additional we'll focus um, on leadership and women and time management, and that will be with focus in modern Western society, um, particularly in the United States, I believe. But some of the problems will be broader. Um, and then even narrower focus on some specific research findings that are coming out around women, time management, leadership roles, um, including publications, and uh, responsibility shifts due to staying at home and having kids at home all the time. So first to start off, I guess, very broadly speaking, in your mind, what is the connection between, at the highest level, leadership and the humanities for you as a professor of humanities and somebody who's worked on leadership as a researcher? Yeah, for me, um, this really came to a head. I attended an institute hosted by Rhetoric Society of America, and this institute was specifically designed for associate professors who kind of stall out at that associate professor rank. They never make it to full professor. And the whole focus of that workshop was leadership and just spending a weekend with the facilitators and kind of thinking through how rhetoric, how leadership, how disciplinary progress, how career development, so even non-academics, you know, just moving forward in your career, what does that look like and how does that, that happen? But that particular seminar for me really crystallized the connection between leadership and a career and how it works in terms of the humanities. Because especially a lot of the careers that we do in the, the humanities are very much like on a track where many people are tenure track professors and then they become tenured and then they become full professors. And humanities, I think, is kind of backed off a little bit in pushing forward on the leadership angle of that. So I feel like a lot of the leadership work in the humanities is actually done outside of academia. It's might maybe more done in like government institutions or museums or think tanks. It's, it's just not something that is explicitly connected to the humanities. So what you find is sort of the narrative with say English professors, uh, which I am, where you know they get somebody to be the chair of the English department, but nobody ever wants it. Nobody is active, you know, there's probably a few people actively speaking, but but a lot of people, there's sort of this narrative that, oh, it's your turn, you have to be the chair. And leadership is something that's very shied away from. So this Rhetoric Society of America Institute that I went to is they had sort of the opposite perspective, and particularly for women in the humanities and women in rhetoric and composition. So the focus was how can you turn all of these opportunities into leadership and for me, that really had me sort of rethinking everything about how leadership connects to the humanities. So for example, when you're doing your writing, are you talking about leadership in that writing? Are you exhibiting leadership? Are you showing roles and things like that? Okay, so that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to take a slightly different perspective probably than yours since you mentioned like a career ladder. My mm -hmm. perspective here is, so I have a PhD in classics and I teach yeah. as an adjunct lecturer, but it's not my primary source of income because mm -hmm. it's hard to make a living like that. So for me, I'm not climbing the career ladder. And so for me, leadership in humanities probably means something different than someone who actually has a focused career on that. So I just want to get, and there are quite a few people, I think, in humanities who end up, as you say, outside of the humanities in leadership positions or just having jobs, but also in leadership positions, such as in government or 
the corporate world. So I want to just get down, like, what are the different modes of leadership within the humanities? You mentioned you can run your department. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned explicitly talk about leadership in your publications. Some other I might suggest are, if you write something that's very influential, publish something influential or give it an influential talk, that is a kind of leadership, although it's focused within the discipline. Mm -hmm. Or are there other, like, I modes of leadership? Or Go on, yeah. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. So um, one thing, I've been somebody that has been very non-interested in social media ever. I don't have a Facebook profile. It took me forever to do anything. And actually, due to some of my work that I'm now doing in the United Kingdom with academics and productivity there, their, their academic world is very linked to using Twitter and LinkedIn in a way that I don't think is necessarily the case in a US context. Certainly, we know academics that are doing that, but there is much more of an expectation and integrated into the way that a humanities career might play out. So while you're doing a research, you're also expected to be tweeting about it and sharing it on LinkedIn and all of that. And the goal of that and many of the workshops that I've been running over there have really focused on being a leader in your discipline in that way where there's this level of public engagement. And what I'm finding there is that certainly you know, the way that they, ha they don't have a tenure system in the way that we do, they're more interested in the research, uh, research excellence framework where their universities are kind of tied to funding based on how many publications are happening in that. But one of the really interesting things about that is of course they have many faculty or academics over there that are you know talking about the research and it might not be for something like getting tenure it's it's totally a conception of how to talk about the humanities outside of that and so you know they're viewing themselves as like putting themselves out there of course doing pr for their research when they're say tweeting or putting it on linkedin but it's also to develop an angle of leadership in terms of you know, here's five people that are talking about this one topic, and they're definitely trying to become one of the names talking about it, not necessarily in like a flashy PR look at me kind of a way, but more in a, I, I want to be known for this area of my research, I want to be asked about, it. I want to help steer it on organizations and think tanks and committee work and, and that sort of thing. So let me ask about that, because I actually don't know about this use of social media mm -hmm. and expectation in British, but I understand the funding situation, mm -hmm. the tenure and all of that. Is the intended audience of the social media work for let's say I'm a British person for my research, mm -hmm. is it primarily other academics or is it no. primarily the public at large? Primarily the public at large. Okay. In fact, they changed the research excellence framework to recognize public impact. And so that is something that is very explicit over in the UK that is not in a way that it is here where they have to be thinking about that all the time. And so I, I, one of the things I've said in many workshops over there is that I think this is a really opportune time for the humanities in a way that we're somewhat familiar with, and it doesn't matter if you're in classics or English or whatever you're in, but I mean, we're really in this mode of, I think, interdisciplinary communication. We connect with a lot of ideas. We're used to talking to different kinds of audiences. We have the skill sets to do a lot of the things that I think you need to do to engage the public with the humanities. So I'm really interested in some of the developments over there because how leadership is developing is kind of different than here. Whereas, you know, I'm on Twitter and kind of a fun fact, I'm from Cleveland originally. I follow the Cleveland Browns. I'm a lifelong Browns fan. Yes, I know there's that game that's watching this, you know, for the season, our first game is terrible. But, I, you know, so I do have some of those, like you would argue maybe fun things on my Twitter. But what I'm noticing when I look at the way that my UK friends are using Twitter, it's, it's sort of a constant conversation about 
how their research is, is moving something forward. And I would argue that's an element of leadership because particularly if you think in some of these fields where in really all fields are still developing, but you know, some may be more so than others, something like open science, you know, there, there's a big movement over there to have everything open and open access. And part of doing that is getting your research out there and sort of emerging as one of the leaders in the discipline with sort of the goal of being able to, you know, share that research and also, you know, start another journal or start another foreign prints organization where you're sharing a lot of this research. All right. I have a few things, uh, questions to follow up on that, and we can steer in either direction, I guess, or any directions. One is, so you mentioned that one of the goals of sharing all this stuff on social media as an academic in this paradigm that you think is probably a good one is to continue the conversation to, Mm -hmm. and another one is to make yourself known within that field. The academic Twitter that I'm familiar with, and this is, I don't know exactly what background it is, these are, is mostly fairly closed. It's mostly a bunch of people in a field talking to each other, which allows the research to move very, very quickly. And we actually saw this in the case of COVID in among, for example, emergency room physicians and pulmonologists. Mm-hmm. They were much, much faster than the published research on Twitter responding to oh, each yeah. other. And then even after Twitter, and this is a thing that I think humanity is actually kind of is behind on, preprints. Very, very widespread, now becoming popular during COVID, started out as a popular thing, I believe, by physicists, particularly on archive.org. But that allows the academic conversation to proceed in a completely open way, without being fully decoupled from the peer-reviewed journal publishing system, but being a little bit decoupled from that, just for the sake of speeding it up, which you see is necessary in a situation like this. I mention this because one of the things that in those conversations excites me and excites the people who participate more than I do, is, is the speed. It's how quickly you can get a conversation going instead of being like, within three years, maybe one person will have responded to my article, especially in the humanities. Mm-hmm. You can have a conversation that within minutes, 10 people have responded, depending on your network. And mm-hmm. speed, of course, we're getting to the, the time management issue here a little bit, but this is something that as a classicist is kind of unfamiliar to me. Classicists are like, you know, the conversation from 3000 years ago continues indefinitely. And, and for kind of leadership role, you have to get used to the fact that you have to time things correctly and you have to do things in a way that's not glacial because people need things at a certain rate. They need things maybe now, maybe within a week, maybe in 10 years, but they don't need it at some indefinite point in the future. So first, I mean, my question is, does that seem like a major positive to Twitter, which again, to me, it seems like a huge thing about Twitter is that you can have the conversations much faster. What are the social media? And second, how much is desire for speed behind these, let's say the change in the uh, research level of excellence for the standards in Britain or behind changes in humanities in general? Is it a need to get stuff out there faster than the, the normal glacial journal publishing pace? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say that I would agree with you in terms of, especially within a disciplinary hub, things happen very, very quickly. And I agree, it is a certain amount of people talking to each other. So I am in a field of rhetoric and writing. And in our discipline, I always tell this to my graduate students, I, run, I direct the graduate program, as I mentioned it, but I usually say, you know, what's great about our field, almost everybody is still alive because my field really didn't develop until the late, you know, late 1960s, at least the very modern conception of it. So, you know, you really can talk to a lot of the people that wrote the very first pieces of work. And that is sort of, that has continued on Twitter where you can actually talk to that person on there with other people watching, graduate students participate. It's just a very unique discipline in that way. So certainly, you know, the timeliness, one of the conversations I've been following a lot on Twitter is just certainly like how, different things in our discipline are being managed. We've got got quite a bit of struggle with 
<laughs> some race issues happening through some of our maybe more standardized organizations. And I like to see how these play out in Twitter where people have real life conversations like, well, you know, if we change this, what about this thing? And there's really this discussion about it. You know, getting back to the other point where you, I know we had talked about preprints a couple of months ago. This, I promise this sort of relates to time management and leadership a little bit. But I do want to point out one another unique development that's it's partly with Twitter, but even beyond that a little bit. One thing I'm noticing that's happening over in the UK is with preprints is this group called Prelights. And I definitely want to do a shout out to them because I think they're doing something very unique with leadership and preprints in a way that maybe the humanities could actually take a lesson from. So what they're doing there is they're basically inviting new researchers to become, they call them pre-lighters. And what they do is they review scientific research and they get to put comments out there. It's very um, crowdsourced and they share information. It's open. And one of the things that happens there is that say a brand new scholar makes some great comments on somebody's research as a pre-lighter, they already made a name for themselves. So they also are you know, basically getting leadership skills in the field, not only as a, somebody as a scholar themselves where they're doing their own research, but in the critical capacity to actually like think through and respond to somebody's research in a very timely manner while it's all generative. So, you know, I, in my, after I'd heard about this, you know, my brain was blown when I was at this conference, I heard about it at the ALSEP conference um, in Windsor in September. I don't remember what the acronym is, I'll tell you. It's, about, it's a publishing conference. But I, 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 as soon as I heard it, I was like, man, if we had something like this for the humanities, that would be great because we always say that humanities, whether you're in academia or not, that, you know, you sort of have to do climb the ladder in some ways. Maybe it's tenure, but maybe it's just working your way through being a research manager and then you're, you know, doing something else on top of that. There, you can really put out what you have right away and get recognized for it. Yeah, I actually did not know about this service at all, but I have been having conversations with various people about elevating the status of the like real-time commentary. Of course, in classics, this is a very time-honored genre of writing a commentary, but normally you don't do that until you're like the respected scholar in the field. Yep. But you don't, but that makes sense if you're going to publish a physical object. You don't want any random person, but if it's online, any random person's comment might turn out to be incredibly insightful. And, um, and I'm, apparently I am actually working to, uh, you may have made about uh, our friend Norman's uh, commentary on Xenophon's Sauropidea. Yes. This is an online, very heavily crowdsourced commentary by scholars, but anyone is allowed with moderation to contribute on an ancient text, which turns out to be about leadership. And many people have tremendous diversity of opinions without having to be specialists in the field. And that has added a whole bunch of new discussion that if you only allow the commentary to be produced by specialists, would not be. And so it's both gathering more information. It's also allowing you to do it in a much more timely manner. And it's doing what you're saying too, which is what, what's, I guess what's not happening yet is maybe in pre-lights it is, but is um, that people who do make these contributions who are really driving the conversation, leading the conversation, don't necessarily get that contribution valued in the academic career ladder, at least as much as I think the, in proportion to the driving of the conversation might be. I, I don't know if this is empirically the case, but I can imagine that there are comments that actually steer the conversation a lot, but that give you zero credit before a tenure committee, let's say in an American system. Mm -hmm. so I think Agreed. Yeah. So you aren't able in many tenure cases to include this stuff. So for example, say you spend time every day on Twitter, interacting, engaging with your intellectual community. This is something I actually asked about and studied in the book that I think we're going to discuss in a couple of minutes. But one of the things I even asked about was how tenure files were basically weighted. So how much is scholarship? How much is teaching? How much is research? And I asked that for some of the people I did follow up interviews. But we did talk a lot about things like, you know, using Twitter for public engagement and basically 
having that level of intellectual activity and, you know, contributing to conversations and the disciplines and all that. And virtually no one had any credit for it. There were a few people that could kind of like blend it into a reflective statement on scholarship, maybe for that portion of their dossier. But beyond that, it was a brief mention. Like there weren't, they couldn't produce, say, a long conversation on Twitter and say, hey, look at what I did today. Like they couldn't do that. It wasn't a, an option. So this is, I think, a good transition, actually, to the book that you mentioned, because I think what we're talking about now is a case of actual intellectual leadership being decoupled from the recognition of that leadership, right? And in, we're talking about in a specific mode and a specific genre right now that's, that's limited and modern, but one of the problems you face as a human having finite time in any field is that you have obligations that are maybe not the same obligations as you know, a single group, so that is your career-focused group. And I'm guessing that regarding the differences in time access that people have, that men versus women, female versus male scholars have, I mean, it's related to these different levels of time expectations from different groups. So one group is evaluating you. I'm guessing this like unpaid kind of labor type of thing. But you can talk about this a little bit more. This is going to transition to time management and leadership and gender differences in the American Academy, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the book that I'm working on right now, it is under contract with Utah State University Press. I want to give them a shout out because they're wonderful to work with. The book is called Retcomp Moms, and it's the subtitle right now is Parenting, Publication, and Productivity. Subtitle might change. But essentially what this book does is it studies 100 time-use diaries from um, rhetoric and composition moms in the discipline. So the discipline I'm in for folks that have not heard of what this is, we're basically a part of English study. So I don't do literature. I'm a writing professor. It's called rhetoric and composition. Sometimes it's called writing studies. And you know, we are a newer discipline, as I had mentioned. So there's a lot that's unstudied about us. And I got very interested in time use when I started getting into looking at faculty productivity and how people do very high profile careers. My last book was about, it's called How Writing Faculty Write, was about interviewing faculty leaders in the discipline to figure out how they found time to write and how they got their ideas. And it's very much in like a Paris Review style book. So, you know, listeners that might be familiar with that could check that one out. But what I ended up doing with this project was I, I kind of put it out there at a survey and I said, hey, you know, any moms that want to share with me and keep a time use diary for a week where you record in half hour increments what you're doing, yeah, I'm going to look at that and study it. And why I was looking at it initially was to look at how they were balancing parenting responsibilities and just doing this career of being a professor or a lecturer. There wasn't like a tenure line or anything. I looked at lectures. I looked at contingent faculty. I looked at, you know, everybody. But one of the things that I, that was my first thing to look at was just to decide like, how are they actually doing this? Like I was interested in logistics when I first looked at it. But when I started getting these diaries back and I started coding the different hours and figuring out what they, you know, what, what these women were doing with their time, one thing that stood out and what is the focal point of the book now is that 38 of the 100 I'm now categorizing as highly productive. And I don't mean that strictly in a scholarly writing kind of a way, because out of these 38, I took a look at their scholarly writing, their research, and then their career advancement. And what I was looking at in that category and most specific to leadership here is what activities were they doing during the week that, you know, either enacted some leadership, emphasized some leadership, or maybe pushed to make them leaders in some way. So for example, one of the diary participants had hours in there where she was writing an application to become the next journal editor for one of the major journals in our field. And in there, in her little diary entry, she had even little notations and things like that about what she was putting in at that time. And it's really how she's thinking through in terms of 
her own time in that week and how much time she had to actually work on that piece of it. But also she's thinking even in terms of a career span. So one of the things that the book does, I think is sort of interesting is it works through notions of Kronos and Kairos at the same time. So it, th it does think about chronological time, like what were the women doing between one and one thirty on a Tuesday, but it also thinks about it more in terms of other types of clocks. So I look at some of the work by Barbara Adam and thinking about how there's several clock time clocks going on at one time. One of the clocks I'm looking at that's laced through this entire book is how time is contributing to these women becoming high profile leaders in the discipline. Because what I was most interested in once I got, you know, kind of finished looking at these diaries was if you have kids and you are a female professor, a lot of times there is this notion that once you get higher and higher in the ranks, the chances of you actually having children are less and less likely. And that has been shown to be true multiple times. There's a study um, by Marianne Mason. She has one with Margoli and a few other people about that. It's called Do Babies Matter? I think it was published in 2013. But that study really said, yep, if you want to be an academic, yes, babies do matter. And they're going to you know, slow your, your progress in some way. And I'm less they go into why? So it sounds like they concluded yeah. that, but the why is, is just, is it time? Is it also like a distraction? And I want to ask you also about fragmentation because you have a hour, half hour by half hour is very granular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah, so what they were finding, I, I don't, this is one of my maybe small quibbles with the book is that I don't think they gave us like clear cut causation, like somebody didn't do X, so that's why this other thing didn't happen. But there is somebody that wrote an uh, article for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Her name, Amy Kittlestrom, I think is her name. And she actually translates the time. Like, if you take three months off for maternity leave, and I forget the exact quote, but it says something like, that's enough to do a comp presentation, maybe an article and something else. And so if we compare then a female professor's CV to a male professor's CV, it, he's going to have the fatter CV because she lost three months and couldn't, you know, just if that way, if we were just saying that's like typical working, that so would that's be chronos, like, right? Kind yeah, of time, chronos, right? Yeah. Like duration time within a, a yeah. fairly concentrated activity. Is there also stuff about the going back and forth of taking care of a baby when they're waking up or defeating them and how that messes yeah. with your ability to focus on deep work? I'm guessing just as I'm trying to think through yeah. what, what kind of kinds of time or clocks would ruin my ability to, to publish or to concentrate at all. Yeah. So, and it's funny you should ask that because one of the primary recommendations, well, I don't want to say the recommendation, but let's say primary findings, because I do want to say, look, what does it take to do this? What are some patterns? And of course, I don't want to say this is the only way to do it because clearly that's not the case. A hundred diaries show there's a hundred different ways at least to do it. But one of the things it does point that is sort of the number one finding in the book, the way these women are getting things done is in bigger blocks of time of one to four hours, uninterrupted, meaning like child-free. So where we're getting into like, I know we talked about COVID, there's been numerous tweets and articles and everything about that, about all female workers at home with children, how COVID is taking a disproportionate hit. And so this book was done, my diaries were collected prior to COVID. But one of the things that I've been talking about with my participants, because I thought, wouldn't this be really great if I had sort of a follow-up conversation? And that's not going in the book. It'll go on. I have a support website with like lots of different things. I'll share the link. But I do want to have a conversation with them about the COVID impact specifically, because so many of these women, like, and I would argue I fall in this camp, because I actually included my own diary in there, the way that we're getting work done is in those concentrated blocks. So like when you're talking about that fragmentation of time, there were some people that would get five minutes here, 20 minutes here tw and, and get stuff done. There definitely were, but they weren't the norm in the highest level. So the ones that are trying to do the, you know, a more 
but let's say they're the ones I categorize as highly productive. And I talk about why I call them highly productive. Like it's, it's an hourly thing where I made some markers, but how these women were able to do it, that is, that is the number one thing. They had a large block, larger, not a huge block. It could have been an hour every day, but it was just child-free and right. uninterrupted. So then I'm going to ask a little bit of follow-up on that smaller group yeah. you mentioned that can yeah. work in little bits and yeah. connect that to recommendations. So like a recommendation that comes from addressing the majority in your group is mm-hmm. find some, I don't know, babysitters or husband or something like that or spouse yeah. or family. Yeah. To, to just let you really, really not worry about it. And that may or may not actually work depending on things like what the baby actually needs, let's say, right? Yes. More prefer. But a second might be, um, are there any things, a second recommendation might be a way to make yourself able to work in fragments. And there may be no way around that for certain people. I'm just thinking in, t- in addition to gender, there's sort of neurotypes that might make you more or less effective at multitasking, at also what exact amount of time is required for concentration. There even as a programmer, which is my like day job, we mess with our heads with things like caffeine and other little supplements to make sure that I know at this point, I'm only going to have like one hour and I really, really need to make sure that one hour is incredibly productive. So I'm going to like take a bunch of vitamin B or something like this, make that happen. Do you know, were there any other either techniques that these like small mm-hmm. fragmented people did apply that seems to help that you could offer as a recommendation or do we not know this yet or? Yeah, no, I I do know that. I don't actually know it from the book I'm working on now because that wasn't the largest pattern. But my previous book, How Writing Faculty Write, I can answer that directly because that is one of the major findings in the book. So this was an interview with 15 disciplinary leaders. I would say, I think I was at like 12, 12 or 13 out of 15 write in those small, tiny bursts. And so I know I have a whole segment in there about how they're doing it, but just a couple of takeaways for folks. One of the things that a lot of them are doing is they leave, they open up a project on their, you know, on their laptop, say an article or whatever it is that they're working on, they leave it open all day long. And when they're doing other things, they just kind of jump in there, they tweak a sentence, they look something up and they've managed, they call it one of the um, folks in there, I believe, I believe this is Danielle DeVos is the person that had said this, but she talked about toggling in and out of projects all day. It was a really interesting way to think about it. When we think about, say, we have multiple tabs open up on our computer, you know, and she just talked about, it's a very natural thing for her. And she was even toggling between different writing projects. So she'd go teach a class. She's in, you know, maybe do a phone call with somebody, go to a meeting for an hour, come back, do a little bit, you know, go to lunch, come back, do a little bit. And she was not the only one. There were many people that talked about, you know, it's doing that. And I actually even shared an office with Cynthia Self, who was the first interview in the book when I was on a sabbatical and I was doing a visiting position over at Ohio State, one of the things that I found out just from watching her is that's how she worked all day long. And that's what got me interested in writing the book in the first place is how does she do this? Like a grad student comes in and asks her questions and then she's typing for five minutes. And then another student comes by and her name's Cindy Self and everybody loves Cindy. I mean, she had tons of people in and out. Her phone was ringing all the time. And she had right. this just comfy chair and she could just clip back and stay and keep working. And I actually lived with her during the time that I was there. And it was the same at home. You know, her husband, Dickie, and I would be watching a Cavs game and she'd be like flitting in and out of her research, talking to us, talk, doing something else. And so I, I believe it is totally possible after watching her. But also when I saw so many of these, again, disciplinary leaders Leaders, doing that. Yeah, these were like journal editors, um, professors that were presidents of the national organizations. They were all at the very top. That's why I asked them because I wanted to know what are you doing that's, you know, making you this leader and how do you write? And I just thought it was really cool. But what came out of that is that that's how they were doing it. But then in that book, I would argue only two, three of them, only three had children. So, oh, right, I see. Yeah. You know, so that was, to me, 
sure, you but can have that. kind of a context switch, it right? It is. Yeah, totally Actually, different kind. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking like in terms of what you're describing, the ability to sort of toggle in, in terms of like technical term and operating system design would be context switching and you have different services inside your operating system that have to be either more good at focused activities like deep calculations or more good at context switching. And of course, the latter are the kinds that are in manager positions, kind of juggling roles, juggling resource roles, as opposed to worker roles where you are, you know, simulating particles or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is, yeah, it's all very similar to that, yeah. Well, and, and in my own experience too, uh, it's funny actually in the academic context as a lecturer, I'm much more in like a worker role. I don't have any leadership responsibilities at all. And so I can just sit down and like read something deeply, write commentary on it, work on it. I have no academic kind of interruptions, but in the technical side, I have more uh, over time, I have more and more of like a leadership kind of architecture role. And that means juggling a lot, multiple projects, multiple people, much more of this context, switching, much less ability to really deeply dive in. Now, I think that I just personally am not that great at that sort of juggling and moving around. I would like to be better at that. We, you mentioned that of the people who were very good at juggling and jumping around, only three of them out of the 12, I think, did have kids. Yes. And so is that like, so certain interruptions do fully occupy your attention. That, that makes time inappropriately or useless. And other interruptions do not, which makes me think that there's some sort of like background thread that's running that you have to manage. And this is a cognitive question. I know your research didn't go yeah. directly into the experience, but yeah. from the point of view of, of like humanities work, um, one of the things that I think you develop when you read narratives, let's say, or develop narratives, is that you get the ability to have a whole bunch of threads kind of tacitly running in the background, so that when something comes up with character X, you kind of know where character X is relative to characters Y, A, B, and C. Yeah. And that's, that means that, it seems to me, this is just a speculation I'm just thinking of, right, that like getting good at reading or at writing narratives might make you good at that toggling, or maybe I'm just making this up and trying to push humanities a little bit, but <laughs> as in addition to like a writing researcher and an academic like sociological researcher, as a student of language also, like do you connect any of this in your head? And Yeah, I, I think so, because here's the thing. One of the things I've noticed about my own habits, because I am somebody that does the bigger block writing habits, and I, I did a, um, an interview in Rhetoricity and this podcast all about my own writing habits, and they were asking me about the How Writing Effectively Write book. But one of the things I mentioned is I'm the type of you know, researcher, writer, where I write from 9 to 11, Monday through Friday. I write in the academic library. I've had that same habit since I was a master's student at Cleveland State way back in the day. Like, that's what I used to do. And so COVID really, I mean, I understand some of the, the issues that people are having with fragmentation and interruptions and like how they're toggling and all that. That really threw me for a loop. And, you know, mostly in my, I feel like mostly in my case was due to a loss of the work home boundary in a writing space. The physical so boundary, just, you mean like? Physical, being, yeah. yeah. You yeah. couldn't tell like what was work, what was home, you know, and I, I actually have pictures of, and I probably will end up posting these on my website for this book, but I have a picture of like my pre-COVID writing space than what happened during COVID. And now my university is open again. So I'm back in my writing space, you know, masked and sanitized. And it's now a totally different writing space because it doesn't look like it did before. You know, everybody's all spaced out, the desks are different. And so what that's really kind of taught me about changing up the writing context, and this is getting to your point about like learning how to do some of that mental juggling capacity is that during the COVID period where everybody was at home, I was scrambling, like I was scratching, you know, 10 minutes to grab a minute on my book. Like I, even things like here would be a funny, kind of a funny example, but I know probably a lot of people are still using K-Cups. I do, you know, I know some people are really anti-K-Cup, but I do, but I'll tell you this. I, what I would do in the morning, I had a print copy of my essay. I would go over the coffee, pump the thing in, 
hit the button down and look, how fast can I get through this while the coffee was brewing? Because to me, that was a way to say, okay, it takes a minute. Our caring is kind of slow, but that's a minute more than I had, you know, in this other thing. And I tried to think of other things like that, like two minutes left on the dryer, one minute while my daughter's in the shower and I know she's going to come out and start hollering for me to like brush out the tangles in her hair or something like that. So I did kind of start thinking in these very tiny slices and, you know, getting back to leadership in this book on Retcon Moms. One thing that I did see in there for the people that were able to pull it off I do think they had a much higher threshold for managing, let's say like a bunch of like tabs in their head at one time, because you could see this, like they would have a half hour and they'd have 20 activities in there, but they would explain, they were allowed to like, mine was an open-ended diary where I did not like um, tell them how to code things. These were open-ended boxes. They could say whatever they wanted about four to 4.30. And, you know, one of the women in there, she really described in detail how she was doing it. So she was like, yes, I'm holding a baby. I've got the bottle with my chin. I'm doing blah, blah, blah. Like she was talking about how she was actually able to make some progress on her book. And like in her case, what she did, she laid down a phone, hit the audio record. And so she said, my notes are terrible because there's like babies crying and me saying, oh, I'll be quiet, you know, like whatever, you know, well, it's okay. Right. But that's all going on in there. But that's how she was able to get it done. And she still had like three other things happening at one time. Like she was still like waving off another child about the dog holding the bottle. And I just saw like how she was able to sort of have it. And it was like a pattern through her whole week that she had somehow managed to like carve up those super tiny slices. And it gets back to, I think the issue of, you know, Kairos, as we had talked about before in this opportune time, those were her opportune times. They weren't great, but they were her opportune times, you know, just in terms of like actually the week, the actually time frame of the week, but also in terms of her career. Right. You know, because I'm thinking about where she was in the cycle. She was like a year, year and a half away from applying for tenure. She knew she didn't have any time to waste. So right. she got busy. <laughs> right. And that's, that's a kind of a mechanical logistical problem and solution rather than just a cognitive one, I guess, that you're talking mm -hmm. about. And it's, it's funny how you end up getting coupled to a specific mode, like I have to have a book or I have to have yeah. a keyboard or something. But you can do audio notes and all of that stuff, that, which for is sure. true. I'm wondering, what do you think then? So, so we recognize that finding the exact moment with the around, maybe not just the exact moment in the Kairos sense, but then also tying that to a sufficiently long period of time to get any work done, which may vary by your abilities, is mm -hmm. changing because of COVID, but also changes because based on your role in life, based on your you know, yeah. career position, based on gender um, responsibilities and expectations. Do you think that people being home from COVID are developing more of an ability to jump around and to have a lot of tabs open, which will which is a generally good leadership trait to have, to have lots of threads running and be able to seize the moment? Or do you mm -hmm. think it's like, when we all go back, like, I guess you already are, I'm, I'm yeah. not, I guess you already are. Are you gonna, do you think it'll you'll be more, more like those mental habits of people who don't need the nine to 11 specific ritual and physical space because you develop those muscles or, or what revert back? Or is it a positive move cognitively, I guess, individually for this kind of time management? Would you guess speculatively? You know, I think it's positive in the sense that, uh, you know, obviously COVID is one thing and we don't know what's going to happen, you know, or if there'll be other types of pandemics. And this is just something we have to kind of dip in and out of as the, you know, the, the thing arises. Uh, you know, I, I think it is positive in the way that, in, and this is just <laughs> purely like looking at these diaries and, you know, kind of seeing how it's affecting those around me. I mean, I think for some people, especially in academia, there is sort of that set 
ritual about a class is this long, a class has to be done this way. We have books, we have articles, like there's a lot of markers that have just stayed the same for a really long time. And I do think in terms of being able to have all those threads in there, I do think it's probably going to enable some people to think more creatively, which again, would then sort of prime them to grab, you know, moments for leadership or moments for other types of, of projects that you know, maybe weren't going to be there. So um, this is something that I've asked my Time Use Diary participants about working from home from COVID and just hearing how creative people were and getting some of the things that they needed. And it wasn't always about scholarly writing. For example, like two people told me flat out that they decided to just sort of sit back because it allowed them the moment to do it and think sort of long and hard about what does it mean to be a participant in my field of rhetoric and writing studies? This is a still developing field and it's a, it's a young field. What can I be doing to make my mark on this field? What can I do? And they actually sort of, they use the time in COVID to really step back, not keep all the tabs open and actually reflect on the deeper question. So I think both things are sort of happening at the same time that some people are doing that big, you know, backup big assessment where they're thinking through the bigger questions while others are managing the tiny, you know, the tiny slices just out of necessity. So, I mean, in my case, I'm not, I couldn't even tell you, I feel like I lost three months. I couldn't even tell you which camp I ended up in. But, you know, one thing that I will say is that now that I have the two hours back, because I am back in my two hours, Monday through Friday, couldn't wait to get back. I was super thrilled to be back in my library again. I loved every minute of it. And I told everybody else about it. They're like, that's horrible. You're going to write, you know, a mask and sit in the library. And I'm like, I know. But the second I sat down, the words started shooting out of my fingertips. So there's something to be said for ritual too, I think. Right. Yeah. And we have to finish up soon. And I don't want to ask you too much about your book, but because yeah. it sounds like we are touching on little edges of both of your books, actually. Pretty, yeah, that's it. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. But I do want to um, ask, I guess, sort of, sort of to lead, begin leading out. So... As a uh, humanities scholar, I guess as, as a professional member of, in your case, it's a relatively new field, which changes a little bit the answer to this question, I think. But what are the areas that most need leadership? And do we, are, is our understanding of what those areas are in some way changing because of this kind of a global pandemic or because of, I don't know if it's because of practical reasons like lack of time or something, or if it's because of like rethinking like what is really important and and what is important for leaders to worry about. And I, I guess the, the context of this for me, is, it seems to me that the only way to know when to act or how quickly to act is not, has not been or months ago was not something that we didn't know from epidemiological and virological studies that had been known for a long time for many years through influenza preparations. It seems that the decisions about how quickly to act and when to act on things were much more a matter of sort of personal preferences and values and juggling those things, which are leadership rather than technical medical issues. And it seems to me um, that it was the, the, um, not the medical issues that pushed in the direction of doing less slower, whereas the medical types wanted to do more faster. But of course, the medical types are not the ones, the technical ones are not the ones who are actually making the decision. So I guess I'm, I'm talking about how to manage as, as a specialist in some way, the balance between the, the time and leadership demands of what your specialty is, and then the bigger picture kind of values and what it's all for demands of being a leader, either within or the discipline or as a member of the discipline communicating to the larger community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think that this works, works out, at least for me, in a couple, of, a couple of ways. One of the things that is really, has really sort of changed for me in the way that I'm thinking about a lot of these questions is 
I'm thinking a little bit about more what I'm showing to the students. I'll just stay within the academic context for a second. So I do direct this graduate program. These are newer members. They, you know, most of them do want to go on. They want to do a PhD. They want to do a, you know, a, a professor type job or some academic job going forward. But the way that we'd always kind of work with these students was, I do feel like a little bit in a vacuum where we would say, okay, you've got a really good research or you've got to get into these really good schools. And we prepped them. I'm very confident that our program is a great, you know, face-to-face -face program. And one of the things that we always had that was sort of a strength for us, which is getting back to your question, I think, is that we've always had a focus on classical rhetoric. And we actually start our classical rhetoric course not with Plato, we actually go all the way back to Homer. And that's something that I actually credit the Center for Hellenic Studies and, and a lot of the workshops and things that they ran there for faculty, because that got me to think about leadership and rhetoric in a totally new way. And that was already laced through the graduate program I direct. The students are already well aware of it. They think about it, we think, you know, from a Western tradition, and this is a Western tradition, you know, that we're we're working from, but we do sort of think about what lessons are there in leadership and then how do those apply when these students are thinking through actually engaging in the field of rhetoric and writing studies, you know, what happens going forward. So one of the things now with me sort of thinking about what we need now, this isn't response to COVID, but it is in response to Black Lives Matter and a lot of these things. I'd mentioned I'm from Cleveland, I'm paying attention to what is happening in my hometown. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's just, there's just no words. I mean, it, there's a lot of things happening that are just not good. And, you know, and you see the public protests and the things like that that are happening there. And so the students and I were talking about that because many of them are from other, you know, other cities, places in the country. And we talked about what are things that we can do with our program to really take it beyond these walls. We have this great intellectual culture. We love talking about Homer. We love doing that. And for the record, our class actually takes an approach of both and or and so, meaning like, We'll read about Plato, but then we'll read about somebody else from a non-Western perspective. And we study like Western traditions that are not Greek and Roman, like Irish rhetoric and stuff like that. But one of the things that has really happened then for us is that we've gotten a lot more interested in how we can take the skills that we're learning and actually benefit society in some way. So that's happened on a number of levels. For example, our program contributes and records literacy narratives for this digital archive of literacy narratives that's hosted out of Ohio State. And these are not narratives by academics. I mean, it's hosted there, but the narratives are from people from all walks of life about how they learned how to write or read or process information. And so there's definitely been more of a movement to collect more narratives from people that maybe aren't represented in this database. And that's, you know, I don't want to say that's an explicit focus on my part. That's something that's really developed organically because of the, the way that the students and I are starting to think about these issues in these other contexts. So I would say, at least for me, it's, it's blurring out from my, you know, in a way it never has before. It's really blurring out beyond the walls of the university to these larger things happening in society. And so one of the things that we do think about then in terms of leadership is what would, you know, what is responsible leadership if we think about how to address some of these issues and how can what we know how to do as rhetoric and writing students and later scholars, what can we do? So, you know, part of that's, you know, we've done podcasts where we talk about some of that stuff. We do videos. We actually made a lot of services for other rhetoric and writing students to teach them about concepts. So for example, we have a YouTube channel where our students went through and actually like tried to figure out what are some threshold concepts in the discipline. And then they talk through what those are and interpret them. So, you know, we, we do kind of think about more of our public engagement in a way that I don't think we had before. I don't know if that, that answers what you're looking for, but it's, it's happening on a number of levels for me, for sure.
Right, and I like the example you gave about collecting narratives, people you wouldn't otherwise, because in that case, that's neither an ethical only nor an intellectual only obligation, but actually being a better scholar, expanding your knowledge is the same thing as actually listening to people, which has ethical dimension as well. And, and of course, as a, as a scholar, you're always trying to do both because you know I think your training is going to make you strong in one area. You're not actually a politician, and yet you want to help people outside of the discipline. So you can leverage the training, the intellectual methods, the, the coding systems, I guess, you have for like bucketing free response kind of narratives or conversations. That's something that actually is a skill you already have and have you know, worked on a lot, and your students have and all of that. And so, so I like that idea too. And I think part of what we're trying to do Kellyanne is try to make that possible. Take instead of saying you're a humanities person, you should also lead. Say, well, as a humanities person, how can you lead? Right. Yeah, and I, I think it'll play out person. differently. But there, I you know I try to think about the chain of not chain of command. That sounds you know kind of sinister, but sort of like the chain of what happens when you affect somebody else. So, for example, yes, I'm directing this program and directing these students, and I'm at, I understand I am in a completely privileged position where I am at lucky. I am at a university that does not police the content. They've been very supportive. I can do whatever I want with this program. And they, they have been a hundred percent like, go ahead. You know, if you can, and with a caveat, you know, if you can bring the students, you can have it. So it's not totally free and clear, but in general, I'm able to sort of go on instinct and think about, well, you know, what would be a really good thing for our program now? So a lot of those moves have also taught me a lesson about leadership when you actually have that creative freedom to do it. So I think there's this really interesting relationship between having these students go out there and be thinking of themselves as citizens engaging in the humanities, in a public space, in an academic space, but in a program where I value their feedback. They will freely admit, I give surveys every semester. Do you like this? Should we dump this text? Do we want this class? When we hire a new professor, my vote is their vote. So they choose, they say, well, I like, you know, this is who I want. And I say, whatever you guys want, that's who I'm going to vote for when I use my departmental vote. So, you know, I think there's a lot of ways that it's layered in there. Yeah, cool. So we're going to finish up with just finally, is there anything just to close, anything about leadership, the humanities, time management that we didn't cover that is essential that you'd like listeners to check out and think about more? I think one thing, and this is just purely from my graduate program, I mentioned the emphasis on classical rhetoric. We've also done like special topics courses on say Plato's dialogues and really creative projects. And actually I can send you a link to the website that we made about that, where we basically suggested an ideal reading order for Plato's uh, dialogues from a student of rhetoric. And we worked with Ryan Fowler to do that. Those kind of projects and just in general, the connection between classics and classical rhetoric. And then of course, in the larger humanities conversation, I do think that Western rhetoric and a lot of things you know, that go with that get a very bad rap at the moment where there's still, I think a, there's a lot of content to be mined from there and applied to different scenarios in society. So one of the things I'm really kind of paying attention to is how can we use classical rhetoric or how can we use classics in a new way to think through leadership and you know how does that affect the humanities? So our rhetoric program as a master's program is very unique in that way. I don't know of another one that has quite as much classical rhetoric content in there that we do. Cool. I'm as exciting from my point of view. So I'm going to ask you actually for links to both these kind of Western, including the Plato thing, and also some of the non-Western resources for our readers, because you know, yep. coming from this kind of Western background, but I also really want to know about these non-Western oh, yeah. as well. Okay, great. So I guess uh, we're out of time, but thanks a lot for your time here. Thanks for yeah. And uh, I will solicit you for those email for the, we have more than a dozen at least more than a dozen different sources you mentioned i'm sure we do <laughs> i threw out a lot out there but yeah i'd be happy to share them with you thank you all right thanks a lot thanks a lot bye-bye okay. bye, -bye. bye.
In addition to this week's guest, the Leading Thinkers podcast would like to thank Eric Shimalonis, Aisha Champagne, and Malaron Hodge. For more information, please visit Kalyan.org. That's K-A-L-L-I-O-N.org. Thanks for listening.